Well, some of you know that uh, Kathy and I have two daughters. They're now grown, but uh, when they were young, they loved stories. Actually, they've always loved stories, even today, but especially when they were young. And so we would, as many of you do, read them stories right before we went to bed. So this is me with our oldest daughter, Amy, reading some stories uh, before she went to bed. She's probably four or something like that in the picture. Um, But our daughter, Hannah, set a new standard for all of this because she had a very specific bedtime routine, and you could not deviate the order or the actual, in, uh, what you included in all of that. And it started with a safety check of the room. We had to check the room for monsters. So under the bed, closet. By the way, I would just, warning to parents, be careful about the age at which you show your children Monsters, Inc. Because that really settled everything for her. So we had to check all that out, make sure that everything was okay and safe. And then I had to read three picture books. Um, sometimes you'd sneak in four, but usually about three. And then she would ask for a Princess Amelia story. Now, let me just explain. These were stories that were original. Um, I had to make them up on the spot. Um, But she had stipulations. It had to have adventure in it, but it couldn't be too scary. And it had to be absolutely unique, original. There were no repeats, no ripping off the plot line of a Disney movie or another story that we'd read. Every one of them had to be new every night. No pressure, Dad. Um, And you've got to know that um, everyone loves stories. People have always told stories because stories move us. They have a powerful ability to communicate truth. They shape our lives. They help us make sense of some of the challenging questions that we face. Um, And Jesus knew this and used a particular kind of story to communicate important spiritual truths. And we call these stories parables. A parable is a story with a point. They challenge us, encourage us, give us perspective on the world that we might not normally have. And these stories, while simple, are never simplistic. While accessible, they're never trite. Instead, they are consequential because they tackle issues and questions, some of the most difficult and important questions of the human experience. Their purpose isn't to entertain, but to elicit a response, to get us to do something with our lives. The vast majority of Jesus' stories were told to uh, communicate what he called or to illustrate what he called the kingdom of God. In fact, many of the parables, although not the one we're looking at today, begin with the kingdom of God is like and then use the story to illustrate some dimension of what the kingdom of God is like. Now, that's not a familiar phrase for many and it can be confusing for others. And part of the confusion is that if we think of kingdoms at all, we think of a territory ruled by a king or a queen. But Jesus wasn't thinking about geography. He was instead thinking about authority, his authority over everything in heaven and on earth. Now, one example of this comes in the prayer that Jesus gave us. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Really, it's the disciples' prayer. It's our prayer. And he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, his point is that we should be praying and working, but praying particularly that the values of God's kingdom peace and justice and love and righteousness be experienced by people here and now. And he says, pray these things that they might happen on earth as they do in heaven. So his will be done. That's the the idea of the kingdom of God. The parables that Jesus told illustrated what the kingdom of God looked like. And the descriptions that he gave were often surprising. Surprising because God's ways often won counter to the way that many people think, whether then or today. And he told these stories in order to illustrate the difference between the way the world thought about things and the way God thinks about things. At times, the stories he told made people mad. Why? Well, because he confronted them with behavior that that he believed was wrong. 
And he didn't sugarcoat it. So many of the stories are bold and blunt. They're challenging stories, not just for the people who heard them originally, but for us as well. Today's story is no exception to that. Now, what's interesting in part about the story we're going to look at today is in the middle of the story, he stops and pauses and tells them why it is that he uses stories to communicate truth. So we're going to look at that first before we actually look at the parable. And the parable is just one of a number that we're going to look at over the next few months. So here's what he says in terms of why he used stories to communicate spiritual truth. So if you wish, um, you can turn to Matthew 13, um, beginning with verse 10. The Pew Bibles, it's on page 1488, page 1488. I'm going to begin reading in Matthew 13, verse 10, although the words are also on the screen. So the disciples, it says, come to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. Hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because you hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people have longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Now, what Jesus says here is often misunderstood. Some accuse Jesus of using these stories or parables as a bit of hide-and-seek, kind of spiritual hide-and-seek. They say Jesus is willing to let some people in on the secret, but intentionally hides it from others. But that's not what he means here. And we know this because Jesus quotes from an Old Testament book called Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, from chapter 6. And the previous chapters leading up to that tell us a story, and I wish we had time, but maybe you'll just have to trust me on this one. What those earlier chapters do is repeatedly confront the people about their sin and idolatry and invite them, ask them to repent. Jesus says, if, I, if you do, I will forgive you and relent from the punishment that I've planned for you. So he spends five chapters encouraging them, challenging them, trying to convict them to repent of the sins in their lives, but they don't. So chapter 6 is kind of the finality of all of that. He says, well, if you haven't, if you won't, then there is judgment coming. But what you need to know is that God never compels anyone to believe. He doesn't overpower us or use force or trickery to get us to believe. Instead, he woos us. And from what Jesus says here, we see that if we do respond positively to his love, he lights up the path before us. So if we respond to what we've been given, he gives us more. In other words, he conceals truth to those who look away, who walk away from him, but reveals it to those who seek him out. Now, that may be where some of you are right now. In other words, you may have a long time ago, maybe for years, have felt like being in a church on a Sunday is the furthest thing from my mind. So you are probably a little surprised to find yourself here in a church on Sunday listening to a story about Jesus. And if that's you, my hope is that you would be, continue to be attentive. You've taken steps toward God and I believe that he will continue to enlighten and help you understand his truth. So my hope is that you will listen and learn and turn your hearts to him. And know that he will give you more of what you need in order to know him better. But there's also a warning here. And that is that Jesus makes it clear that some have refused to listen. 
They've hardened their hearts against him. And he says the responsibility clearly is on your shoulders. You've freely chosen to reject him. So that's the warning that Jesus has here. Now, as sad as that might seem, know that that decision is not irrevocable. Anyone who repents is welcomed back. In fact, we have to be careful about trying to identify who's in and who's out, who's part of the kingdom of God and who isn't, because really we don't know. And even if someone may initially reject Jesus or react negatively to him, that reaction is not the last opportunity that they will have. They too may one day turn back to him. But those who do remain rebellious, who refuse to listen, will be judged in the end. Now understand, to be clear, it's their response to Jesus by which they judge themselves. So the bottom line is that we do need to make a decision. With Jesus, there's no middle ground. We're either for him or against him. But he is always open and waiting for us with open arms. So my hope over the coming months is that none of you will close your eyes, cover your ears, or harden your hearts, but instead ask Jesus to tell me a story and teach us what it means for us to live our lives the way that God intends for us. Because we know that Jesus did not come to hide the truth, but to reveal it. Now that's a long introduction to these parables, these stories that Jesus tells, that we're going to be looking at in these series in the coming months. And uh, the story that we're going to look at today typically is called the parable of the the sower, although maybe more accurately, as you'll see in a moment, you might call it the parable of the soils, because the soil, the ground, is uh, the drama in the story. So let me read the story beginning in verse 3, where Jesus, uh, it says, told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, he says, let them hear. Now just a little bit of a kind of old uh, ancient history, I guess, um, is that the fir- in the first century world, they planted crops differently than we do. So if you go in any farmland in, in the United States anyway, you'll see that the farmer first plows the field, making it uh, receptive to the seed, then drops the seed into it. And they did it differently. They scattered the seed, and then they went and plowed the ground to kind of work the seed into the soil. Um, that explains why in the story, this seed is scattered over different types of soil. The farmer was doing that. Um, All of that is designed in Jesus' stories to give them a little bit of an idea of what this story is, but they, like maybe some of us, are wondering, what in the world is Jesus talking about? You know, you want to say, come on, Jesus, why don't you come right out and say what you mean? And that's exactly what the disciples said. They asked him what uh, was going on, and so Jesus was gracious enough to fill them in. So in verse 18, he says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. 
This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, the first thing Jesus does is he defines the actors in the story and tells what they mean, um, what they represent. So the farmer, we learn, is God. So farmer equals God. The seed is the message Jesus brings about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In other words, seed equals the message. And then the soils, the four different kinds of soil, represent us. So we're the soil. And the way Jesus tells the story, the farmer seems almost indiscriminate in the way that he scatters the seed. He flings it into places that are unlikely to produce growth. Now, at the risk of making too much of one detail in the story, it seems that the farmer, who again represents God, is extremely generous with the truth. He's extravagant in distributing the seed. Now, whether the detail is um, intentional or not, the truth is, is that God is generous in revealing the truth to us. And as the story unfolds, God's generosity with us just increases our accountability. So as God is generous, so are we accountable. Now what Jesus makes clear here is that the different kinds of soil represent different kinds of reactions that people have to the message that he has for them. And he starts with what he calls the path. Now fields in Jesus' day were bisected by footpaths that allowed people to make their way from one place to another. And it's the equivalent of walking through a park and seeing a concrete sidewalk. So you make your way, walk along the concrete, um, and not then on the grass. And it was impossible on these hard-packed paths for anything to germinate, for a seed to germinate. It would either be crushed by the foot traffic or, as Jesus indicates, gobbled up by birds. And then he explains that the path represents those who refuse to listen. They cover their ears, they cover their eyes, they're resistant to the truth. At best, they're indifferent. At worst, they're hostile. And Jesus even identifies the birds in the story as Satan and his followers who snatch up the seed before it has a chance even to put down roots. There are a number of things that can, um, for us, shut our minds to the truth. It might be stubbornness, it might be pride, or a desire to hold on to a sin that we think will make us happy. But the result is so hardening our hearts that we refuse to even consider the truth. And it sounds hopeless, but it really isn't because with God, even hard ground ground that may have been hard for a portion of someone's life, we can take hope that at the end of the story, he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So even if we have at one time in our lives been hardened to the truth, we can open our ears, open our eyes, and hear. So the way we can live that out is in even the smallest openness to the truth is something that God can use to break up the hard ground in your heart and allow the seed to a chance to grow and flourish. So if, even if at one time you've been very hardened toward the truth, you can open your heart and God will use that small opening to allow that growth to begin. The second kind of soil is what Jesus calls rocky ground. The seed falling on rocky ground, he says, refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. Since they have no root, they last only a short time. So he's describing ground that uh, probably is a thin layer of soil over some rocks. And so even if the seed germinates, the roots just can't sink down enough to get purchased to really allow that plant to grow. So pretty quickly, it withers. And he's describing someone, he says, who receives the good news with enthusiasm, but even with, once it germinates, it doesn't put down roots and eventually it wilts and dies. And he says, because of trouble and persecution... Now, it's important to know that following Jesus brings peace and joy and contentment and hope that you may not have previously had, but it also may bring difficulties 
even persecution you weren't expecting. And Jesus is just simply telling us to be prepared. And that when these things come, he will sustain us as long as we have put down roots. And in describing this kind of soil, he says that the person hears the word but doesn't survive. And one of the differences between our world and the way we use language and their world is this word hear. When we talk about hearing something, we're talking about absorbing it cognitively. We've heard something, we've absorbed it. But in their world, it had a whole nother step, and that is you not only heard it, but you did something about it. In other words, you didn't actually complete the loop of hearing unless you put something into practice. And we intuitively get that. We know that people that don't kind of practice what they preach um, really aren't genuine. And he's just saying that if you hear something and you put it into practice, then we know that you've truly heard. And the caution here that we should take away from the discussion of this kind of soil is if we don't do something with what we've heard, we really haven't heard. When I was growing up, I was exposed to some Christians who put a big emphasis on words. They talked about asking Jesus into your heart or they would ask others, are you born again? Now, let me just, so you don't misunderstand me, it's absolutely true that to be a follower of Jesus Christ requires a personal response. So we need to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again so that we can have life. And in order to be a follower of Jesus, we have to make a personal commitment. That's why um, in Romans 10, 9, Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But we also need to understand that words alone won't cut it. We intuitively get that. We know that if we don't live out our faith, it's not genuine. That's why faith starts off strong in some cases, but fades if it's not real. It has to be lived out to prove that it's really been absorbed and heard. So how do we live this particular one out? Well, if you think your problem is that your faith is too shallow and it may not survive, then you need to take the next step to allow the roots of your faith, metaphorically, to grow, to sink down. And one of the ways to do that is to spend time with God on a daily basis, and we encourage people to do this often, just to read a little bit from the Bible and to pray. If you do that on a regular basis, whether it's in the morning or the evening or some other time that you have during the day, that 10, 15 minutes or longer can be a way for you to put down roots. And one of the ways that we try to encourage you is providing reading plans, and one of them is available in the lobby on the credenza underneath the verse from Jeremiah. Um, and it's just entitled Spending Time with God, and it gives a short reading from the shortest of the biographies of Jesus, the one, the one that Mark wrote. And it gives a little section. Sometimes it would know, take probably less than a minute to read this section. Um, just reflect on it. Ask God to show you maybe how you ought to put that into practice. And then pray. Pray for the needs that you have and the needs of, of others close to you. And in 10, 15 minutes, you can get a good start to the day. And actively take steps to sink down roots of your faith into your life. The third kind of soil that Jesus describes, he calls thorny ground. And this is someone, he says, who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word. And this might be the most common kind of soil today. It's the problem of distraction, and it's the danger of worldliness. Jesus lists two common distractions, worry and the lure of wealth. And I don't know about you, but I get the problem of greed. St. Paul warned uh, really bluntly in 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who want to get rich fall into the temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So in case you don't get it, he's clear here that pursuing wealth is going to be a destructive thing in your lives. 
And so most of us get the idea that the desire for things, if carried to an ultimate uh, extreme, will lead to all sorts of destructive behaviors. So we understand that it's easy for the things of this world to crowd God out. It's a real problem, this problem of greed and desire. A bigger problem than probably most of us realize. We've never had more stuff as a culture than at any other time in history, and yet we're not necessarily closer to God. In fact, we may be further and further away. But the one that puzzled me at first when I reread this this week is worry. Is worry really sin? Like greed? I mean, we get the greed piece, but what's the connection here with worry? Well, we need to understand that worry, about worry, and I would, by the way, distinguish between worry and concern. I think that concern, we're all going to be concerned about things in our lives that bring some level of anxiety. But when we get to the extreme of anxious worry that becomes all-consuming, we're essentially saying to God, I don't think I can trust you. Worry, if we let it take root, robs us of peace. And Satan can use worry to lead us away from God, to become so consumed with worry that, as some have said, we become functional atheists, which means that we may say what we believe in God, but we act as though he doesn't exist and can't take care of us. So how do we live out this problem of being in some kind of thorny ground? Well, one way is just to ask a question. Is there a worry or is there a desire in me that's really inordinate, really beyond what it should be? Is there something that I'm not willing to give up in order to follow Jesus? Maybe I'm saying, Jesus, I'll go so far with you, but, you know, I want you to stay away from this area of my life. It might be a desire to continue to grow your career or a relationship or a possession or something else that you're not willing to give up. If you think to yourself, God, you can have part of my life, but not all of my life, then you're probably in thorny ground. Anytime you think to yourself, God, I'm okay as far as this goes, but when it comes to this one thing in my life, I've really got to have that. I'm going to draw the line there. You're probably in the midst of thorns. Now, we all have an area or two in our lives that trip us up. Um, I do, you do. We all need to remember that in those moments, we need to remember that the things that we believe will make us happy pale in comparison to the super abundant, abundant, productive life that Jesus has for each one of us. So even recently, I've been thinking about an area of my life that has been a kind of something that's a challenge for me. I've been thinking again about what it is to surrender that to God. So to live this out, it means surrendering all that we are to Jesus. The final type of soil is good ground. Jesus describes this as producing a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And this is really the climax of the story. The soil that does what it's supposed to do, receives the seed, and shows astonishing productivity. So Jesus describes four kinds of soil. The path, then the shallow rocky ground, then the thorny ground, and then this good rich soil. But really the way Jesus tells the story, in the end there are only two categories. The first three, the path, the rocky, and thorny ground, all fail to produce a crop. It's only the fourth, the good soil, that proves to be productive. So to carry this metaphor a little bit further, every farmer knows that it doesn't matter if a seed germinates if it never, ever produces a crop. If it doesn't prove to be productive, either because it doesn't sink down roots or because it's choked out by the, the, the weeds, it's, it's not a productive crop. All that matters is whether it produces fruit or, or a crop in the end, even if it's on the lower end of the expected yield. For Jesus, there are two kinds of people, those who listen and those who don't, those who um, 
here and those who don't, those who are true believers and everyone else. And so to be like the seed in the good soil, to live that out, means to be productive. The other kind, and some kinds of seed is extremely productive. To Jesus, the point isn't the level of productivity because some people have more gifts and opportunities than maybe we have. Some people have greater impact in their lives. But the key is to make sure that we're in category four, that we are people with true faith, faith that will ultimately prove productive at a level consistent with our gifts and our opportunities. So what we need to ask ultimately is which kind of soil are we? And to see to it that the seed doesn't fall on a hard heart. To be careful that our faith isn't so shallow that it can't stand, stand up to any challenge because it's not taken root. And to weed out the thorns and instead be good soil. To be someone who has ears to hear, eyes to see, and an open heart to receive the seed that God wants to plant in our lives. Now remember what I said earlier, that God will never compel you to believe. Instead, he woos. And it may be that he's prompting you today, that he's speaking to you, and maybe it feels like for the first time you're listening. So turn your heart toward him. Trust him that he will heal. And listen to the words of Jesus when he says, blessed are your eyes because they see and your hearts because you hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these stories because... um, In many ways, these stories give us a a much clearer picture of the things that you have for us. And in this case, Father, it's a challenging story, one that challenges us to open our eyes, our spiritual ears, and open our hearts to you, to allow the seed of the truth that you have for us to take root in our lives. Father, I pray that we would be people not who are hardened toward you, but are soft toward you, people who um, are, are not shallow. And, and just satisfied with a faith that has little substance to it, but be people who sink down roots. That we would be people who weed out the thorns that are around us, the cares and concerns and worries and even greed in our lives, to be able to be people so that seed can grow and be productive. And whether it's a little bit of productivity or a lot, depending on what it is that you have done and are allowing in our lives, Father, may we be productive people. Um, Be people who continue to keep our hearts soft toward you, our our eyes open, and our ears um, listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.